The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for the stories making news and moving markets in the APAC region. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. And joining us now is Jennifer Welch, Bloomberg Economics Chief Geoeconomics Analyst, for a look at her big t- piece on what the U.S. presidential election means for China. So, uh, Jennifer, thanks very much for joining us here. It's something of a parlor game out here for us and who China would like to see most or who do they fear most. And it seems like from this piece, uh, the it's kind of a lose-lose situation for China. Explain. That's right. And thank you so much for having me. I I think that's a tough game. That's a tough bet to make, uh, given that both of the most likely candidates in November's election, current President Biden, former President Trump, when you look at their records on China and also what they are planning to do if given more time in office, it suggests they're both pretty tough on China in in very similar ways. We saw, obviously, under former President Trump, he launched a trade war against China. He's promising if he's given a second term to expand that trade war, intensify it further with higher tariffs on China. And we saw President Biden, when he came into office, retain those tariffs from President Trump. There's discussion now, reports that he may seek to expand them in certain areas like EVs and clean energy products. And he's also taken a number of measures targeting China's access to things like advanced semiconductors. So I think from Beijing's perspective, it it certainly is a challenging uh, you know election for them that no matter what, they're likely to face sustained U.S. pressure regardless of who wins. If we can put the partisanship aside for the moment, I would really appreciate your critique of the effectiveness of these strategies. On one hand, Trump, uh, former President Trump saying he would actually raise the level of tariffs by 60% on all Chinese imports. What would the impact be on the economy? And compare and contrast that with the Biden administration, kind of targeted export controls. And, and I'm wondering whether or not there would be more value. Let's imagine a world where foreign direct investment into China from the U.S. becomes uh, more scrutiny, uh, scrutinized by the U.S. Uh, administration. Would, uh, could you just kind of address those two points? Sure thing. So on the first question of what would happen if former President Trump followed through on his pledge to increase tariffs to 60 percent, we modeled this. And according to our estimates, it would reduce U.S. imports of Chinese goods almost entirely to nearly zero. Uh, And that's affecting, you know, going off of just what he said, pretty much all sectors um, in which the United States is importing anything from China the impact that that could have is pretty wide ranging in part because it depends on how much of that trade could shift to other countries. Mexico, Southeast Asia, the EU, India might pick up some of the slack, but then the rest of it would either have to be a remaining gap or would have to shift to production in the U.S. And particularly for U.S. companies that are dependent on any intermediate goods coming from China, that could lead to higher prices for U.S. consumers. They could be paying more for their goods. 
If you're looking at, you know, what President Biden is proposing in terms of a more targeted increase in tariffs, that's specifically aimed at things like EVs, at advanced, or sorry, uh, older generation semiconductors, goods where the administration might be concerned that China is able to produce them cheaper and essentially dump them into the U.S. market in ways that are going to disadvantage U.S. producers. So would likewise potentially result in U.S. consumers not having access to those cheaper goods, but the intent is to protect U.S. companies um, from competition with Chinese companies that receive massive subsidies. I'm interested what you heard from people you talked to uh, on this piece uh, about the following. Uh, It's apparent that Donald Trump uh, seems to have a better relationship with autocratic regimes uh, than, say, Joe Biden does. Uh, and and so, you know, once you get away from just the mathematics of the of the tariffs, what about the general approach of the two men towards a country like um, like China, which is a one party state? You know, it's interesting when you listen to former President Trump talk even publicly about China, it is somewhat of two minds. Even in talking about the 60 percent tariffs, I think he prefaced that by saying that he doesn't have any personal province problems or grievances against China, what he has a problem with is the trade practices and the impact that has on the U.S. economy. And I think that's a really good descriptor of his approach to uh, rivals like China, where he has taken a very tough and firm approach. And, you know, in addition to the trade war, which is, I think, what attracted so much attention during his tenure, if you look at his last year in office, there was this surge of financial sanctions, trade blacklists, executive orders, all targeting China. China. And that was when some major steps happened, like declaring China's human rights practices in Xinjiang a genocide, closing China's consulate in Houston, Texas. So by all means, a very tough and firm approach to China. But at the same time, the rhetoric tends can bounce between very, very tough and very, very firm. And then things that seem to be a little bit more complementary uh, of China. And I think that's just sort of the duality of the former president. Two different worlds when it comes to the issue of climate change. And we know that the Biden administration has uh, pretty aggressive plans. Is it possible for the U.S. to execute on its goals of reducing carbon emissions without embracing what China has to offer in terms of manufacturing, whether you're talking about uh, wind or solar? I think that's the key debate that has happened in the U.S. policy community. And it's happened in part not just over this concern uh, about, for example, Chinese EVs uh, and clean energy products, but it actually started earlier on in the administration when there was a concern about how do they reconcile concerns about human rights practices in Xinjiang and use of forced labor with things like solar panels, um, which you know China produces a great amount of. I think the the way in which President Biden would frame it is that it is possible to do both of these things. And the path that he sees towards that is through bringing manufacturing back to the United States, which has other economic benefits, and working with allies and partners to stand up other supply chains. Of course, the devil is in the details in terms of how that's implemented and the efficiency of industrial policy in getting you to that point. But I think that's the means through which he is attempting to square that circle. All right, Jennifer, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Jennifer Welsh, Bloomberg Economics Chief Geoeconomics Analyst. And the uh, big take of the day in the Trump-Biden 2024 rematch, the only sure loser is China. 
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. We've got Deanna Mussina with us, Doug. Uh, you want to introduce no, her? No, no, you can. I mean, Deanna yeah. is uh, Deputy Chief Economist at uh, AMP Australia. She joins us uh, from Sydney. Deanna, thank you so much for being with us. Hope, uh, Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you're doing well. I know that Australia was up and running. Everybody else in the neighborhood was on holiday yesterday. So you were at the office, I'm sure, crunching numbers mm-hmm. on the inflation story that we've been tracking very closely here in the U.S. We're waiting for the CPI data Tuesday morning. How well, how effective do you think central banks have been in bringing down inflation to the point where, I mean, we really don't need to worry about it the way we were a year ago? Well, yesterday I was enjoying highlights from the Super Bowl, actually, and looking at all those pictures <laughs> of Taylor and Travis, actually. And, you know, funnily enough, today um, Taylor's coming to Australia in two weeks' time, and uh, they actually announced some more tickets. I'm going to be desperately trying to get those today. But anyways, <laughs> on to more interesting things like inflation. Uh, I think, I mean, central banks have actually done a very good job in bringing down inflation uh, without causing too much pain on the economy is what it co- economists are calling immaculate disinflation. But we don't want to get too excited that there's no damage being done because history tells us that there are usually some consequences from very severe tightening cycles. So I think that while we have had pretty good outcomes in the past six or 12 months in terms of reducing inflation, and we do think more, there is more downside to inflation uh, based on some of the leading indicators of prices that we look at, I think that there could be some more uh, impacts from higher interest rates around the world. So I think we need to be mindful that growth this year is still likely to be pretty low because of that. It's a little tricky in in Australia at the moment because you have business conditions easing. We've reported that data this morning. Confidence is not particularly strong, but inflation is sticky and the RBA is kind of holding on to a kind of tighter profile. Um, What's that going to mean for the economy going forward if you have confidence down inflation up and a tight central bank? Well, in Australia, we lag the rest of the world in terms of the upturn in inflation. So we are also lagging the rest of the world on the way down. So we do have higher CPI numbers compared to countries like the US, Eurozone, New Zealand. And the parts of inflation that still worry the Reserve Bank are things like rents, uh, construction costs, or just generally the costs of building new homes, things like insurance and finance, some household services. So there are sticky parts to inflation, but the overall story around inflation is still quite positive in Australia as well because we've seen pretty large declines in prices for a lot of discretionary-related spending, goods inflation. Very clearly, interest rates are working to slow down consumer spending, and actually in Australia we have much lower growth than in countries like the US and the consumer has responded much quicker compared to the US because consumers are much more leveraged here and also because of the way our housing market is structured. More people take out variable or short-term mortgage loans unlike the US. So the pockets of that sticky inflation or the concern that the Reserve Bank has is really only in some parts. We are still seeing that the breadth of high CPI rises has come down a lot in Australia. And I think in the next six months, we're going to see inflation come back in within the RBA's target band. 
Australia's big trading partner is obviously China. Different story there when it comes to inflation. It's non-existent. I mean, we're talking about deflation. Is this a precarious position right now that China finds itself in? Yeah, for China, it's a big problem because you don't, I mean, we know from from history that countries that have deflation suffer big problems in terms of the impact to corporate revenue, household purchasing power, and generally confidence. In some ways, deflation can be worse than hyperinflation because uh, with hyperinflation, there are normally more policy tools that you can use to, to combat that. It, 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 it is a big negative for China and I guess another uh, another negative risk for the economy there. I think that growth this year in China will be uh, about 4%, which is pretty poor. But that's probably enough to keep that demand for commodities from Australia enough for our trade balance. Can I just go back to something you said earlier, and some people will kill me for this, but um, what is the cultural phenomenon that is Taylor Swift? <laughs> To some extent, I think that maybe it's just everyone getting on the bandwagon because I know many people that are, oh, I'm not really a Swifty, but have just decided that, you know, her concert looks amazing and there's so much press around it. You kind of just get swept up in the hype that it is. I think it's more just the media hyping her up and everyone getting a bit of FOMO that they can't attend. Yeah, but definitely there's an economic impact. Do you have a a guess on what that impact could be when she visits Australia? We tried to to look at these numbers. There's a a joke in economics that if you don't know what the impact of something is going to be, just say it's going to be 0.3 percentage points (laughs) because it doesn't seem too high. It doesn't seem too low. So I'm going to say 0.3 percentage points. All right. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Brian. I, I, the, well, the reason I raised it, Doug, was uh, she had mentioned that she was going to desperately try to get tickets. Uh, so I thought, um, you know, it was fair enough game. Uh, anyway, Diana, thanks so much for joining us. Diana Mosina, Deputy Chief Economist at AMP Australia. This is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Geroid Reedy, who's writing about two superstars, Taylor Swift and Lionel Messi, and their recent Japan visit there on the same night, and what that means for the country compared to other places like Hong Kong. It seems like from reading the piece that while there are some challenges, uh, Japan is back. That's right. That, uh, you know, just coincidentally, that basically was the theme of uh, an op-ed in The Washington Post as well today by the uh, U.S. ambassador to Japan, Ram Emanuel. Um, as I speak, as you mentioned, on the, you know, the, the markets update there, the Nikkei is uh, nearly back at, at 38,000, closing in on uh, its all-time high. And then we had, in you know, stark contrast to, to Hong Kong, we had uh, the site of Two of the biggest stars in the world, Messi, Messi and uh, Taylor Swift, uh, on stage or on, or on the pitch um, at exactly the same time. It's uh, it's an interesting moment to be here. So, are we speaking to you from the uh, Japanese capital? Are you in Tokyo? That, that's right. Yes. So, anecdotally, what does it feel like? I mean, give me a sense of the vibe there, if I can use that term. I mean, it's um, it's interesting because it's not exactly you know it's not it's not necessarily a sort of like a bubbly moment, but. Um, 
after the the years of covid and the pandemic and when you know the borders were closed compared to that there's so much life in the city there's so many tourists uh particularly in tokyo the tourist levels are something like 30 percent higher than they were in 2019 which you know before before the pandemic hit was the highest they previously were um you know economically things are going pretty well the wage negotiations are going on here at the moment um, a lot of places are seeing wages increase. There is a, a small um, but you know manageable amount of inflation, which is stands in contrast to the years of deflation that we had before. So it's it's an interesting moment. I don't think anyone's getting uh, carried away at the moment, mm. and obviously there are sort of significant challenges as well, as you mentioned. If we talk about Tokyo, I want to kind of get you to contrast. Uh, is it a great city? or a great international city. I mean, you point out that there are a lot of great things about Japan generally, that the public transport is excellent. You don't need a car. Healthcare is cheap. You can get plain and affordable housing. And yet, you know, Japan is an enigma. Um, there's not much English spoken. And you mm. wonder how much of an embracing of foreigners there is. There's a kind of shunning of immigration. Well, you know, that is the, I think, the stereotype of Japan. If you look at the figures, uh, there has been a huge increase in the number of foreign workers here in the last uh, decade, not just in Tokyo, but in, in the country in general. I think that figure passed uh, 2 million in uh, data that was released uh, last week. Um, and that's just uh, workers. That doesn't include, you know, students and spouses and, and people like that. Um it is certainly it is a very different city to you know to Hong Kong or Singapore places like that where English is more um, you know is one of the spoken languages, but a lot of those barriers you know aren't the barriers that they used to be with you know online translation with apps that can help you figure out where to go and and you know that will sort of bridge that communication gap. And I think a lot of people are coming to Japan and they're seeing that maybe for the first time. There's definitely a lot of people uh, I sense who are coming here for the first time, maybe they saved up over COVID because they always wanted to come here. And they're like, they arrive here and they're like, well, things actually work pretty well here, um, you know, in terms of like the public transport and, and healthcare and, and stuff that you mentioned. I'm wondering if a weak currency has been benefiting the situation to the extent where if you are uh, an official uh, within, let's say, the Ministry of Finance or even at the BOJ, whether you'd be very careful about changing, you know, the structure of that relationship with other major currencies. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it is um, either way it goes. It's a double edged sword. It is very uh, promising for tourism uh, at the moment. Uh, on the flip side, it makes it very difficult for people who are getting paid in yen to travel abroad. And you see that in, you know, the number of Japanese going abroad as well below uh, pre-COVID levels and number of people who uh, even have a passport um, has declined uh, quite a lot. So that that is, you know, uh, there are obviously benefits and, and, and downsides to that as well. In terms of, you know, the direction of the yen, I think that is all going to be based on, you know, essentially BOJ and, and uh, Fed policy over the next couple of months. So I, I'm not sure there's much really that anyone in the Ministry of Finance could even do, uh, even if they wanted to do. Every time I go there, I, I enjoy it. And uh, so don't get me wrong about uh, some of the uh, the angles that we took there. But uh, you have to say, I think for most people who've been there for a long time, and perhaps you're in that category, that it, it's not as inclusive as it could be. What's the biggest challenge for Japan at the moment? 
Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I've been I've been here twenty years, and obviously, you you you've seen um, or I've seen you know things uh, things change. I mean, I think one of the the biggest uh, issues is that um, the pace of change is definitely different to what people expect, and I wouldn't be surprised to see. You know, we have this you know, very excited uh, stock market at the moment, I wouldn't be surprised to see that go the way of the previous, yeah. um, you know, the previous ones a couple of decades ago, where oh. people sort of lose interest and they look elsewhere. But oh, um, you're scaring you know, me there I, with I think that. Getting- anyway, Geroid, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Geroid Reedy. This is Bloomberg. This has been the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.